Welcome to the Horses and Life podcast. I am coming to you once again from Smithville, Missouri. I don't know where the month of April went, but it's gone. And now we are into May already. I had a couple of trips, but I've mostly been around Kansas City since I talked to you guys last on the podcast. And I've got a few little trips coming up. I'll be in Pennsylvania next week, Tuesday, May 7th for a clinic. And then I'll be straight back here for a clinic Thursday, May 9th. We'll have some live music after the clinic next Thursday here in Smithville. My friend Scott Ford uh, will be up here playing some music for us after the clinic's over. And Scott is going to be on the podcast at some point, but we've discussed it. We just haven't really made connections yet. For those of you that do enjoy music, there'll be a few more musicians coming up on the podcast soon. For those of you that don't enjoy music, I hope I can introduce you to some music that maybe you would enjoy. But if you don't, then don't worry. There'll be some other topics coming up. I've got a couple uh, podcasts that are going to be concerning baseball. We've got one with a iconic fly fisherman. We've got one with a lady who has traveled all over the world working with horses. And she was a friend of my grandfather's, and she's got some cool stories. And we've got we've got some coming up for some of you people who love horses, for sure. And then today, we're going to be talking about one of the most important topics, probably. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. The last episode was entitled The Pura Vida Style. And I wanted to touch on that for just a minute. The term Pura Vida, you can, you can look it up and I'll kind of paraphrase a little bit of the, some of the things you can find online if you just kind of look up what does Pura Vida mean. And it is a phrase that they use in Costa Rica, the Ticos, or the Costa Rican people as they're called. They use that uh, saying when they say hello, when they say goodbye, when they say thank you, when they say you're welcome. They kind of use it just to say everything good, everything's cool. Uh, to translate the words Pura Vida straight from Spanish, it kind of just means pure life or simple life. But it's really kind of a phrase that that represents a philosophy of life. And that philosophy is kind of a, a way to celebrate good fortune, a way to, it, it kind of encourages the appreciation of life's Simple treasures, uh, slowing things down, not taking things for granted, having a laid-back lifestyle, finding some inner peace, things like that. So, anyway, Pura Vida is a pretty popular uh, phrase down there. They, they, you know, they they sell that at, to all the all the touristy type places. I mean, the T-shirts and bracelets and and hats and everything is all about Pura Vida. But even before any of that became touristy it's kind of something that's been around there for a long time it's just kind of the way that they uh, treat each other and the way they greet each other so anyway uh, towards the end of the podcast there i asked macho about some of the things he's learned in life that he thinks are important and he refers to that uh, saying and so anyway if you didn't have a chance to look that up or you didn't know what it meant now you've got a little better idea i hope so anyway there was a lot of pictures i put on my website about the last episode, the Pura Vida style episode. And for those of you that, that haven't looked at the website there, most of the episodes have pictures you can scroll through. Some will have more than others. Even if you listen to this podcast through one of your apps or some different app and you don't go to my website to listen to it, that's, that's great. But if you want to see some pictures, you can still go there and see some pictures. So, and that's calmiddleton.com. While you're there, make sure you get your email into my newsletter. Uh, newsletter will be coming out in a few days here. I asked my mother for some help finding some old pictures of a friend of mine that I had on the podcast coming up, and uh, she dug out some old stuff the other day that I haven't seen for years, and she kind of forgot about them as well. Some of them we don't ever remember seeing them, but we found some cool old pictures, and so there'll be some some pictures uh, coming up on the newsletter and some of the podcasts that are kind of neat, so family and some of them with horses, some of them with uh, sports and things like that. So anyway, thank you to all those of you that have been supporting the podcast and uh, that continues to to be uh, a big help and I'm wanting to grow the podcast more, so we've got to keep working on that. 
I don't have anything else really to go over with you today. You're going to be listening to a conversation I recorded with my friend Kara Wojcik. Kara is a licensed clinical social worker, and she's out in Pennsylvania in the Harrisburg area. She works with people of all ages, a lot of youth. I thought it'd be good to have her come on and talk to us a little bit about some of the things that she sees out there in the mental health world. Uh, mental health has always been of interest to me. Uh, behavior has, has always really intrigued me. Um, animal behavior, I've, I've been studying animal behavior since I was a young, young boy. And I just keep trying to learn more and more. And sometimes I think I have a little bit of something sorted out and then I get something a little bit deeper. Especially the last few years, I think I, I I worked for a company in Kansas City and I would go into some school districts and work with some children that had some pretty severe behavioral needs at the time. And that kind of put me on a path to really thinking pretty objectively and, and really thinking critically about some of the things that, that were happening and just got me thinking in general about what we do and why we do it. And, and um, you know, I really enjoy trying to learn some of those things. And I, I had to get pretty deep to make some of those uh, changes that we made there. So anyway, um, I don't understand all of it, but I, I enjoy learning about it. And um, I thought it'd be fun to get somebody on here that has a has a background in that. And I've appreciated Kara's friendship and I've appreciated her outlook on a lot of things that, that she goes through. So anyway, I hope you, uh, you guys enjoy the conversation. Without further ado, I bring you Kara Wojcik. Here we are in Pennsylvania with Kara Wojcik. Kara, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. But Kara, what are we going to talk about today? We are going to talk about mental health, mental wellness. I don't know what's going to come up, just mental health in general, I guess. I just told Kara, we don't have any plans, so don't worry. She said, no, no, it's kind of the opposite for me. I, I think I'm worried because I don't have a plan. I said, no, I, I think it's better if you don't have one. That's, that's more relaxing. So anyway, it'd be interesting. So I've known Kara for a long time, but I haven't really known her at all. I met you 15 years ago in Iowa at a church camp of all things, and then came out here to Pennsylvania, and my dad and you have stayed friends, and you guys worked together at a church camp up in Iowa a little bit. So we got back in contact and been talking about different things and thought I'd get her on the podcast and she can tell us a little bit about what she does. Yes, I'm glad you're in Pennsylvania. Hopefully it's been good to you. It's a good place. I am a school social worker. I have my master's in social work. And so I work in six different schools during the day, primarily middle school and high school. And then I'm also a licensed clinical social worker. And so I have my own private practice counseling business. So two nights a week in the Harrisburg, Pennsylvania area, I see couples and families and do a lot of work on anxiety and depression and self-esteem. Suicide prevention is a passion. So kind of have dibbled and dabbled in all different areas. I started off in drug and alcohol, worked at a women's shelter, did some in-home family therapy. So that's what I like about my field is you can kind of dibble and dabble in all different settings. Dibble and dabble. Sounds like it's just kind of a, a nonchalant thing, but it's probably one of the most important things or overlooked things. I don't know if I know a lot about mental health or the brain or how it works, but I sure enjoy a little bit of learning about it and trying to understand some of it. What's one of the biggest things that you see the young people struggle with that you work with? I see youth of all ages trying to figure out who they are and what matters to them and having a hard time of figuring out what path do I take. I see a lot of wavering back and forth between who I think I should be and who I want to be. And society and pressures and family makes that hard to figure out. I guess it comes down to authenticity. Seeing students live authentic lives, I think, is the goal. And I see many students who haven't found that yet. I think that's got to be a, a tough thing. When you say people live in their authentic lives or the students live in their authentic lives, meaning that they, they feel like they should be doing something different, I think a lot of students front, right? I think they're wearing masks. I think that just kind of like social media, we live in a highlight reel. So we have to say, how are you? I'm good. And I'll ask a student that and they'll say, I'm good. I'll say, no, you're not. And they gave me this look like they don't know how to handle it. I said, I know you're not good. I don't want to hear you say I'm good. But we live in a society where you're walking on the sidewalk and you see someone and you say, how are you good? 
you don't really want to know how they're really doing, right? Because if they aren't doing well, do I have the ability to help them? And so we've just kind of learned to just bury it and mask it and just get on with our day. And so these students are growing up thinking, I am, I'm good. I post a picture which shows I'm good. I want to make sure I get enough likes. But there's a lot of pain going on, and we're not talking about it. We're numbing the pain, and we're not talking about it. And we all have our stuff, and authentic people deal with their stuff, and they talk about it, and they lean into the pain. But we're kind of taught to lean out of the pain because it doesn't feel good. So that's what I mean when I am saying we have a lot of kids, students, and adults who just don't even know who they are because— Every day they're just trying to keep up and hustle with what's going on in the outside world, but they're not really stopping and saying, who am I and what's going on with me? Is there also a little bit of truth to when you say you're good, you think you're good, and then you're going to have a little better chance of being good? When I say good, meaning just kind of happy or healthy or moving on, being positive rather than pessimistic. I mean, that's obviously a very surface level than some of the larger issues that you deal with. But is there some truth to that? There is a mindset, right? Think good, feel good. And one of my favorite authors, Gabby Bernstein, says, we look in the universe to reinforce our thoughts about the world. So if I think that the world is a good place, then I'm going to look for things that reinforce that. If I think the world is a bad place, I'm going to look for things that reinforce that. So I give the example to my clients. If I get a flat tire, if I'm not in a good place, Bad things always happen to me. The world is a bad place. I'm unlucky. If I look in a positive lens, I might say, I'm glad it was only one tire or I'm glad I have AAA. That's just a small example. But, you know, everyone always says karma and all these things. I don't believe in that. I believe that it's the lens that you choose to see the world that we live in. Rose-colored glasses, in a way, or sometimes being happy you know how to change a tire. Yeah, exactly. That helps, too. Like, what can I do? Right. Or I just call AAA and say I'm grateful for AAA. No big deal. You mentioned something in there about putting on a front and being able to not really live up to maybe who they think they ought to be or some of the social pressures might be put on that they think they ought to be certain ways or doing certain things. And I know you sent me a text this week that you had a really interesting day that bothered you, right? There's something you wanted to work on. Tell me about that. So I had the privilege to go back to my high school, which was kind of cool, and do uh, mental health lessons to juniors. And so I had four sections, 30 students each, and they could pick which classes they wanted to take, which is a really great thing that this school did. So one of the questions was, they were all seated. I had them sit in a circle. I said, if the answer is yes, stand up. I said, are you good enough? And they said, well, wait, what do you mean? I, I, I need you to clarify. I said, no. The question is, are you good enough? So in the first section, two people stood up. I remember having goosebumps and being like, this is it. Oh, my gosh. This is the crisis that we're living in. So that was two out of 30. And I was like, maybe it'll get better. Maybe it's just this class. But every time, so the second group, there was three. The second group, there was two. And the last group, there was three, which were all kind of wavering. So that is 10 out of 120 students said that they were good enough. So I went down to every kid that did it and I pointed at, why are you not good enough? Why are you not good enough? Why are you not good enough? And I can be pretty intense in those moments. These kids didn't know how to handle me, but you could tell that they were engaged because no one probably had ever talked to them in this intensity and made them, again, own their stuff. One girl said, I have anxiety. Another boy said, I can always be better. Someone else said, I'm not nice to my parents. So I said, okay, who has anxiety? Raise your hand. So just so you know, you're not good enough because she said, no, no, no. It's not their anxiety. My anxiety is worse. I was like, oh, the rules are different for you. And so I said, you need to go out into the hallway and anyone who has anxiety or anyone who could be better, you need to announce that you are not good enough. And then we get really like, I could never say that to anyone. And so then I said, you are good enough because you were born. Your worth is not based on what you do. It's based on who you are. And so I said to this one, you know, what do you play lacrosse and basketball? What happens if you break your legs and never play lacrosse? Are you still going to be good enough? And he was like, whoa. And I was like, what are you thinking about right now? And he said, when lunches. I said, no, don't do that. Don't front, right? You could tell he was very uncomfortable. And I kept going at him, this this jock kid. And I said, no, really? What is your worth based on? He's like, how well I do in lacrosse. And I think that's the world that we live in. We are only recognized for achievements and what we give to the world as far as prestige. And so these kids have grown up thinking, if I have anxiety— If there's something wrong with me, wrong being quotation marks, then I'm not good enough. That is concerning to me. Yeah, there's a lot of of things there. Whenever you're learning sports, whenever you're learning to compete in sport, you're always in a way taught and in a way, you know, the most competitive, successful athletes have a mindset that they need to get better. 
always, even after they win the big show or win the big tournament or whatever it is. It's like, well, but I got to get better because the next kid's going to be even tougher or whatever the case might be. That's a slippery slope, being able to say that, hey, I, I realize I can improve versus saying I'm not good enough where I am. And I think that it's got to be where, sure, it's okay to think I still want to improve, but I have to be happy with where I am now. And then if I want to improve, there's some improvement. Yeah. And we have to be able to celebrate our accomplishments. And that for me is the piece of what's filling my cup, my joy cup. Someone gives me a compliment and I don't receive it because, oh, thanks, but I could have done better. Or thank you, but you're just saying that to be nice. I mean, if, I, if I'm never allowing those positive thoughts to fill me and my worth, then I'm functioning from a, a low self-esteem cup. And what if your best wasn't good enough, right? I lost. So am I thinking, oh, it was a bad day? When I lose the game, it was a bad day? That goalie was really good? Or I'm a failure and I'm a loser? Do you see the difference? Because in my mind, healthy people say, you know what? It was a good game. I played hard. Maybe I could have done better. But man, that goalie was great. But people functioning from the not good enough cup are going to say, gosh, I'm a failure. I shouldn't even play. That was horrible. When the defeat happens, the words that you use to describe what happened are very powerful. How do you handle the disappointments? And that's grit. And that's what I'm seeing a lot of kids. Resiliency, grit. Grit's kind of the word we use in schools. A lot of people don't have that. And that's a whole other topic. What do we do to help that? Recognize that sometimes in life, bad things are going to happen, not because you're a bad person, because that's just life. Not because anybody wants bad things to happen to you. Not because karma, just because life can be hard. And what do you do about it when life is hard? And recognizing that there's not a force greater than you that's making bad things happen. Life is just hard sometimes. And life is not fair. And recognizing that you have the tools within you to be okay or helping kids learn what those tools are. And that's the piece. In my world, kids who have full toolboxes of mental health tools do better. It's interesting because a lot of teachers will say, oh, this kid, I feel so sorry for them. They have all these things, poverty, trauma, their dad lost their job, all these things. But you know what? They have tools because they've been dealing with it. I'm more worried about the kid that has never struggled because their parent has made life easy for them. When they hit their first disappointment, their toolbox is empty. Those are the kids that I'm worried about. So we kind of have to switch our thoughts on um, struggle and disappointment and stop feeling bad for people who have had a lot of hard things happen because those are the people that actually kind of know themselves. Some make it through those times smoother than others. Right. And some learn to know themselves better and some come out of it a little more uh, bothered. It's interesting, of course, for those of you that have listened to this podcast much before, you'll know that every now and then I'll kind of relate it back to horses for a minute. So a lot of the thing in the horse industry today, what happens is people are out there trying to teach horses not to be scared. So they're, they're trying to do these things before they ride as if to keep the horse from getting scared rather than trying to teach the horse, hey, life's scary sometimes and you're going to get scared. Here's what you do when you are. So in a way, what I really do with horses or with helping people with horses is I try to help people understand a way they can help their horse have the coping skills to just deal with whatever comes up. Mm -hmm. Horses are obviously full of anxiety. They're just a prey animal even more so than than, uh, we are. And they are always full of what's about to get me. Yeah. You know, what's coming after me? And so, of course, you know, our lives are are run by fear if we let it, but we're intelligent enough to try to shut that off sometimes, or right. at least we, we ought to be when we yeah. when we work on that, right? Um, but horses aren't, aren't intelligent enough to shut all that off, so that's what we have to do to help them so they can kind of make it through. But whether or not we can shut some of that stuff off has to be part of the key, and you and I have talked about that a little bit earlier about working on ourselves, working on the mental health, working on our brains. It's... It's interesting how people are always talking about working on your abs and working on your butt and working on your shoulders and, you know, getting yourself in shape from the neck down. But you don't hear a lot of people publicly bragging about, hey, I just went to therapy today and worked on my brain a little while. Why don't, why not? I mean, that's a little more important than the rest of it. Well, going back to what you said a little bit about horses, I think it's not what if, it's when something happens, I will be okay, right? And that's the piece of it for if I'm riding a horse, if I'm riding a plane, what if the plane crashes? Or what if I get in a car accident? Or what if he breaks up with me? Whatever happens is going to happen and I will be okay. And that to me is the shift that we need to make. I have anxiety. I'm on the A team. That's kind of what we call it. And so we get caught up in the what if world. and But we need to say, I will be okay. I, I have been through hard times before. I will be okay. And that shift kind of 
calms your brain down and gives your brain permission to not have to try to protect you. Because like anxiety, when we have a panic attack, our brain is trying to protect us. Hey, brain, I'm going to be okay. Whatever happens, I'm going to be okay. And I think that mantra, and that, that's why mindfulness is so important, because it just prepares you to say, I don't know what's going to happen today, but I know I'm going to be okay. Yeah, I think that is basically just having self-confidence, right? And your ability to handle whatever comes your way, yeah. Yeah, just being confident in, in whatever's going to come up. You know, being able to say that I can handle this. But and that's why we're in a crisis right now with the youth is because I don't ever have self-confidence working through hard problems if I've never had problems. So we have parents that are trying to take away every possible problem because we don't want our kids to suffer. We don't want them to fail. And I say to my kids, I hope you fail. <laughs> I hope you don't make the team. I hope that you don't get into your college. And they're like, that is so rude. And I say, I want you to know that you're going to be okay. And so exactly what you said, that comes from self-confidence, but parents don't want to see their kids fail. And so now these kids don't know how to fail. And that's a really important skill. Because there's going to be quite a bit of that in life. And nobody's better to talk about kids than you and I, since we don't have any. So, well, we, have, we at least we have microphones, we right? So that's, that's where we start with the platform. Why is it that parents think it's important to protect the kids from failing well and it's i'm not at all trying to judge parents and listen like you said we're not parents and it's not just parents it's teachers it's when you're helping whatever it is i mean i think that we're coming from a place of love and worry and we want people we care about to have good lives that are stress-free that's not a bad thing i think the problem is when you solve others problems you take away their ability to figure it out Here's an example I was thinking about. When we were driving, we didn't have cell phones, so we had to print off MapQuest, and I would get lost all the time and have to go to a gas station and have to talk to someone. Now we use MapQuest on our phone, so they've never learned how to solve their own problems. Parents have trackers on their phones, and they need to know where their kid is at all times, and I think that's really bad. And I think that kids need to learn to solve their own problems. And again, going back to what you said, we never have confidence if we can solve our problems if someone's always solving them. I say to the kids, how many of you get a bad grade, go into the bathroom, text your parents, your parents call the principal and then they get you out of your consequence. They sheepishly raise their hands. I said, that's bad. Shame on you. So I think we have to let people fail so they can learn the skill set of knowing, again, going back to what we said, when bad things happen, I'm going to be okay. I think being able to let those children figure out some things on their own, right. whether it works or whether it doesn't, is right. important. And of course, for those of you that ride horses, you probably heard me say things very similar to that. I mean, you have to let the horse kind of figure some stuff out. Right. You you give them the parameters, and then they have to learn, uh, you know, what to do within those parameters. Right. And if you don't allow them to learn it on their own, if you're always doing it for them, it's going to be pretty tough for them to figure it out. I was just reading an article in the New York Times, and they're talking about snowplow parents. It used to be helicopter parents. I want to hear your thoughts on this. Snowplow parents. So snowplow parents, you want to prepare your kids for the road, but snowplow parents prepare the road for their kids. So they go ahead and they get rid of all of the barriers, the bad things that might happen so their kid won't have any failures. So now they're going to college admissions, which is a whole thing came out about that, right? Or now they're calling up the HR director when they're losing their job. I mean, they're calling up the roommate's parents and saying, why'd your kid do this? I mean, it's that's the level we've now gotten to with these snowplow parents that we're preparing the road for our kids to make sure my job is to make sure you don't fail. And there's the other piece of when you fail, you're a reflection of me. So we have parents raising kids that aren't confident enough in themselves. So if you fail, then I'm a failure. There's that piece of it. So I've got to keep you from failing so I don't have to deal with that pain. I worked for a little while as a behavior consultant. Full-time, I worked for a company in Kansas City called Show Me Behavior Services, and I worked as a behavior consultant, mostly one-on-one with one child the first year. Then I did a little bit of consulting a couple of years after that. And I saw a lot of that in our education system where we're trying to make things too easy and trying to make things a little too, like you said, you know, prepare the road for the child rather than preparing the child for the road. Maybe that's not the way you said it, yeah, but, you know, it's pretty much similar to that. And that is exactly the way I look at, at what I do. And, of course, some of the success that I had in the school districts was because of some of the experience that I had working with the horses. But I was no expert in, in either, but I was just able to try to learn as we went and, and try to figure out some things. And I can't agree more that I think we've got to teach Everyone, whether it's the horses, whether you're working with dogs, whether you're working with children, whether you're working with adults, to try to figure out what they can do to prepare for whatever might come. It's got to kind of be a big thing. Okay, so I've got to tell you this real quick. 
This gal's name is uh, Lenore Skenazy, and she has been called the world's worst mom because she let her nine-year-old ride the New York subway alone. Now, I think she's got a couple books out, and I will tell you guys, I, I watched one of her, I guess it was a TED Talk, maybe it was just a YouTube video, but I, I really enjoyed it. And, of course, it hits home with me for just constantly trying to keep people from micromanaging what's going on with their horses. And I can't agree more with the people that feel like they've got to let the children go out and make some mistakes and figure out some stuff on their own and prepare for that world. But it's got to be a little scary. I mean, a nine-year-old sounds pretty, it's pretty young yeah. to ride a subway. You know, I'm sure there's more to the story. There's a lot of, a lot of stuff there to think about. I have a question for you. Someone gets on the horse, and my guess is you can tell their mental health by the approach they use for the horse. Take away the technique piece. If they have confidence, if they're, maybe you've already talked about this in other podcasts, but what would you say you can tell by someone's mental health based on the first five minutes of them getting on the horse? I wrote an entire book about it, basically. And we always kind of say that you have to get yourself right before your horse will get right. Mm -hmm. Now, some people might take that as I'm trying to say that you have to be perfect or you can't be anxious sometimes or you can't be jealous sometimes or you can't be angry or sometimes or sad or whatever. The, the goal is not that you're going to get yourself perfect. The goal is you have to be able to step outside of all those emotions just for a minute and you can work that horse. And that's what mindfulness is. And the mindfulness piece is super interesting because a lot of the people that are good with horses, they may not even realize that what they're doing is something that people now call mindfulness. Sure. But the people who are great with horses, that's what they do. Now, there's also a misconception going around that if you have issues in your baggage in your life, that you cannot be great with horses. And that's just glaringly not true. But what it means is in that moment, to be great with that horse in that moment or in that day or in that hour, you have to be able to set that stuff aside and help that horse. When I say help that horse, I mean at least be there mentally enough so then you can be there physically to do what you need to do with the horse. Of course, there's a lot of technique that you're learning yeah. and things like that, but you're right on. There's a saying that hurt people hurt people. I think hurt people hurt horses. Of course. Right? I mean. And dogs and cats. And everything. And everything. Yeah. For me, it comes down to alignment and two things for healthy people. You show up for your life and you do your work, right? So show up for your life means I'm having conversations that maybe are hard to have, or I'm interacting with people, I'm being honest, I'm working my steps. Whatever my passions are, I'm following them. Maybe I'm going to school, I'm going to work, whatever that is. I show up for my life. I'm not late. I get along with people. I present the best way I can and then do my work. Is, and I'm aware of those things that make number one hard, and I'm working on them, right? So show up for your life and do your work. And then to live in alignment, and what are the things that help me do those things the best? For me, it's working out and eating clean and surrounding myself with people who are doing their work. And I go to therapy and I've tried medication before and all those kind of things. One of the exercises I have all my clients do is say, here's an A column and a B column. So the B column is all of the things in your life that would be bad for you. So if I do these 10 things, I'm not going to be in alignment. And then the A column, these 10 things and I'm in alignment. And so every day you make that choice of which column am I going to live in. And so that's, for me, it's... Am I in, in alignment today? And obviously, often those bad days are when I'm living in the B column and I'm not in alignment. And not that every day needs to be great, but I know there's things that I can do to keep me from going down to that hole because I think we're all about five decisions away from being in a hole. Even if you've had a great, you could say, oh, I've had a great life. I have no mental health issues, Kara. Everything's been great. Five things away from being in that hole. And praise and gratitude if you haven't been in that hole. But if when that hole is coming near you, are you going to know how to navigate it? We use the word mental health, mm -hmm. um, but man, that that encompasses a lot of mm -hmm. a lot of stuff, and probably a lot of people aren't even sure, you know, what what that means. Or what I mean, we're we're talking about, you know, teenagers who are possibly suicidal, and then got somebody listening out there who gets along pretty good, and they just have some days where they're a little sad, or they're a little this or a little that. So, what's the labels that we put on stuff, and are are labels even important, or is it just kind of like we just have to try to work on things? Yeah, I think I like that, like the callisms. We just got to kind of try to work on things because mental health is being so used in the media and then mentally ill, mentally unstable. So there's, again, there's almost a stigma now about talking about your mental health. People in my camp like to use the word mental wellness. But we also have the thought of it's health, but then it's mental health. Why is your brain different than your body? Why isn't it all just health? 
And for me, mental health, mental wellness, the thoughts, feelings, behaviors that you do every day that affect every choice that you make. Um, the way you feel about yourself is kind of your GPS for the world. And so that's why it's really important to be aware of what your mental health is, meaning what are my triggers? Uh, what what feelings do I have a lot that when I have this feeling, I make a good choice or I make a bad choice? Just knowing yourself and being aware. Um, I get so, you know, I always use the analogy when I go on an airplane, I say, I want to sit next to you on an airplane because you're probably going to save me. I said, but I'm not saving you. Right. And we get caught up in wanting a hero syndrome. I want to save everybody else. I want to help everybody else. But I have no clue how to help myself. And so mental health is just the things in my life that are happening and how I respond to those events that happen. And, you know, if I get if I have road rage, that's a that's a problem. People brag about the road rage. Well, clearly you're not in alignment because it feels good for you to give somebody else the middle finger that you're never going to see again. Like, you know, or when I'm like cussing people out or I'm yelling at the trash man because he was five minutes late. Like what's going on? Like that's just wasted energy. And so I think that people need to take a step back and really look in and say, what is going on with me? Um, I think there's a lot of brokenness in families. There's a lot of trauma. And I don't think that we are always equipped to know how to handle them ourselves. So we turn to um, unhealthy outlets and we numb the pain. I talked about that already. So I think that we need to really just kind of take a self-aware people say, hey, I go to therapy. Like you said, hey, I'm struggling today. Hey, today is not a good day. And we need to be better at doing that. There's a little bit of a used to be, maybe is the way I should say that. I know my viewpoint on so many things in life is totally opposite of what it was, you know, 15, 20 years ago, you know. But there's a certain stigma that goes along with people going to therapy sometimes. There there, there was, or maybe there is at times, and obviously it, it's not warranted and we should get rid of that stigma, I feel like. But I think the ironic thing is healthy people go to therapy and unhealthy people just act like they don't need to go to therapy. Right. Right. I mean, that's a pretty black and white view there. Sure. I'm not saying that everybody needs therapy today. Right. You don't have room for all of them anyway. Right. But <laughs> what I mean is I think it's uh, we all have things to discuss. And we all also can probably look at someone in our life that we look up to or looked up to, whether it's a generation ahead of us, especially, that we can now look and see the things that they had going on and say, man, I wonder if, what would have happened if they would have ever been able to just sit down and talk about how they felt. Right. But at that time, they didn't think that was something they were allowed to do or, or right. didn't want to do. Well, and not to put you on the spot, but I think men have a huge issue with the stigma of it. And not all men, not all men at all. But in my experience, I'll talk to my clients, will your husband come to therapy? No. Will your boyfriend? No. And they'll say, I don't need to talk to a stranger. Why would I talk to a stranger? How are they going to help me? That's so weird. And we know that we are the most connected we've ever been, but we're the loneliest we've ever been. And I think that's very fascinating. There's, I don't want to quote these articles because I don't know exactly, but just men don't sit and talk about what's going on and how many men have friends. And sure, maybe they'll go have a drink, but they're not really sitting there talking about what's really going on. I think women do a better job of calling and chatting and really going deep. But men have this idea that, first of all, men are fixers, right? So why am I going to talk about it if nothing can change it? And men, I think, have to work through the ego part of I'm struggling and I need help. It's hard for men to accept help. Not all men, but in my experience, a lot of men. And so I worry about the males. I worry about these young men. It's way cooler to say I have anger than I have anxiety. I worry about, I think, underneath a lot of addiction is anxiety. And so that's my coping skill. And I'm not saying that men who have drinks after work are alcoholics. See, that's what they say. Oh, so you're calling me an alcoholic. I'm just saying there's probably some underlying anxiety. You're stressed out, but you don't want to say you have anxiety. You're going to say I'm stressed out or I have anger. And it's a lot cooler to say I'm angry than I'm anxious. And so there's a huge stigma with men, some women too, but many men with the idea that I need help. It's not as easy for people to say I need help, especially if it's something they don't really understand, right. you know, how someone can help them. And I understand the idea of not wanting to talk to a stranger. Why would I want to talk to a stranger? But I, I, I kind of like the, the Forrest Gump bus driver approach there. You, you meet him the first time and, well, we ain't strangers no more. <laughs> so we can go on now. But, yeah, that's a big deal. I know, I mean, there's, I remember a couple of movie quotes growing up about, I remember, I remember Crocodile Dundee, there was somebody saying something about a, that's so-and-so shrink, you really helped him a lot. And he's like, yeah. oh, I didn't know she was crazy or something. I mean, like at the time, I probably kind of thought, why was that line so funny? Right. That made sense to me, right? But of course, now I look back at it and I think, what a shame to look at things from that lens. Yeah. You know, I tell you this all the time. So I meet you and 
on the outside, oh, he's just a dumb jock. He's just a football player. He's just a wrestler. This is before I even had a conversation with him, listeners. But I'm just saying, like, the persona that you are. And But then when you start talking about mental health and you're saying, hey, therapy is good, they're like, whoa, wait. You're you're open to therapy? You can really break down those barriers. When Kevin Love, who was a player for the Cavaliers, has a panic attack on the basketball court, becomes the poster child for therapy, that is a big deal. And so I'm putting it on you, the cows of the world, to go to kids, right? Like, you're going to reach some of these young men better than I can and say, buddy, it's okay. Like, you need help. And so I really appreciate that you have an interest in this because most people your age aren't sitting around trying to do a podcast on mental health but yet you could still go and talk sports with the next one. So that, to me, is a powerful story that you have. Well, I'll— uh, I did just call you a dumb jock. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I, I think I appreciate what you said there. Well, the funny thing is, today, I probably can't sit and talk sports like I would used to would have. That's be- funny. Because I, I just don't catch up with as much of it as I used to, and I've gotten pretty wrapped up the last, you know— I don't know, 15 years maybe in in what I do here for a living and building my business and blah blah blah. But I, I will I will say, and I've, I think I've said this before. You, the last I think two podcasts ago, I think episode maybe six or so was John O'Sullivan who talks all about youth sports and and the things we need to do different there. And uh, we talked there about how I, I just mentioned to him that I had to kind of shed a little bit of my competitiveness in order to be good at what I do for a living now because. I had I had to let go of a little bit of that feeling of I, I've got to do better, and I let sports consume a lot of my life. And I think sports can have a a very positive impact on people's lives if it's done in the right way. It's interesting. I think there was a part of me that tries to anymore enjoy watching the game and don't worry about what happens at the end of it. And that's not easy to do. And I have friends and family that are better about that than others. And and uh, there's a friend of mine in Texas that we go back and forth a little bit with sports. But it, it's a really cool thing to be able to watch the game, enjoy the entire game because it was a great game, and then walk away right before it's over and then go to bed and not even worry about who wins. Now, that's, that's not easy to do. Yeah, I'm not there. <laughs> I'm not there. I definitely am competitive. But. Yeah, and I'm not saying there's yeah. anything wrong with that. And I know that there's times when the first thing I do when I wake up at 3 a.m. is text my brother and say, hey, who won? But I know there's also times when I think it's it's important to just say, man, it was a fun game. Why can't we just enjoy that? And I think there's a, there's a piece there. So uh, I like to listen to Sam Harris quite a bit. And he there's a, a good speech he gives about mindfulness where he talks about our emotions or our capacity for emotions. It's like on a roller coaster or some kind of train track. And what people don't realize is they have control of that train. And for just a minute, they can just step outside and let the train go right on by and then step back in whenever they feel like it. You know. And he's real big into talking about meditation, which is training the brain. And kind of like you said earlier, um, we work on ourselves, our body. I mean, people are going to the gym and every day you hear somebody trying to get you to go to the gym for this or that. But people don't realize they can work on that part of the brain a lot too. That's something I think is pretty overlooked. The biggest thing I see show up in my office is the inability to emotionally regulate, which means whatever feeling I feel, I feel it in the most intense capacity. So I'm angry. So I'm pissed. So I have to get revenge, right? And that is bad. Um, And so instead of being, instead of saying, I'm so angry, I'm Kara who who has anger today instead of the anger that over overtakes. I use the the analogy of you're surfing the waves. And when you have your surfboard, meaning you have your toolbox, I feel the anger, but I know that I can keep riding on. If I lose my surfboard, I get pulled into the undertow and then I'm and then I'm flopping and I'm swimming around. I'm just angry. So you have to make sure that you're you're riding the waves with your surfboard. You're either an observer or a participant, and I choose to be a participant. Like, I'm stuck in the anger. I need to remove myself. That's what mindfulness does. I remove myself out of the arena that I'm now sitting in the seats watching it happen instead of feeling like I need to be in there fighting my own battles, fighting other people's battles. So when my clients get healthier, it's their ability to emotionally regulate. I don't have to respond to every every emotion. And I had this girl, this high school girl the other day, she said, oh my gosh, it's so nice to be able to have a couple of different emotions during the day and not get caught up in them. I can finally enjoy life more than I ever was able to. So that is probably one of the biggest issues is inability to emotionally regulate um, and not get caught up in 
But again, like in some ways, it's working for us. I want to be angry. My boss pissed me off and maybe they did something that was wrong. So I'm going to be angry. But then we don't recognize the domino effect of how that affects every other aspect of our life because we're so stuck in our own anger and in our own way. I just kind of had a thought that maybe we've used the word mindfulness, you and I have both here today a couple of times, and maybe just to let some people know that aren't real familiar with that word. But basically, I know, you know, not to put words in your mouth, but what we're talking about is just trying to live in that present, at least for that moment. And like you said, realize that I'm Cal and I'm sad today. I'm not a sad person or whatever. Like I am this and being able to step away from your emotions for just a minute or two and at least kind of continue that identity of whatever it is that, that you're doing. It's, it's just the process of being able to kind of live in the present moment rather than being able to get wrapped up in the what if or the mites or the, is that kind of the way you look at mindfulness or is there something different? Yes, right. And I think people who are doing their work and spending time in yoga or just sitting, you know, just 10 minutes sitting on a yoga mat or sitting on your couch, what happens is there's a shift, there's a pause. So the trigger happens. Like, you pissed me off. You hurt my feelings. But if I've done my work, I can pause and I can really think about my response, right, before I send that rude email. People who are not doing their work, they send the email right away. Um, I also think that going along the line of being in the present, I had a friend say to me, be where your feet are. And I think that's good. Like, so right now I'm sitting, I'm doing this podcast with Cal And I think gratitude is a big thing. I appreciate this moment. I'm thankful that we have this opportunity to do this. Gratitude is something that can really help with mindfulness and not get caught up in the what ifs. Gratitude is is direct line for joy. And so people who are the happiest are doing mindfulness, are doing their mindful work, and they're doing their gratitude work. And those two, in my mind, go hand in hand to help you find that shift, to help you find the pause, to not get wrapped up in what's going wrong. But okay, right now I'm thankful for this moment and I'm thankful that for this opportunity. And even though something sad may occur or something bad might happen, again, as we talked about earlier, whatever happens, I will be okay. I first got into a little bit of yoga in Scottsdale, Arizona years ago, and I haven't really kept up with it, but I, I actually really enjoyed the mental part of it and the meditation part of it quite a bit in the beginning. And it's it's uh, it's actually a really funny story. My first yoga studio I went to is actually pretty funny. I'll, I'll tell some people that sometime if they get a chance to come around. But one of the first lessons I remember hearing that really hit home with me was learn to notice without commentary or judgment. And that's a pretty big piece for me. And I have people that have been around me, some they've heard me say that. They've probably read it in my newsletter. I'm always kind of putting a little tidbit of this or that in there. But but it's, uh, boy, that's a powerful thing. At least that was powerful for me. And that could go along with a hundred different yeah. scenarios, just noticing whatever it is that's happening yeah. without making a comment on it or without even letting a judgment be on yeah. it. And that's not easy to do. Mm. It's not easy to do. You've talked two or three times today about making that shift. And you tell me if I'm wrong, but a lot of what we're talking about is just making that shift from whatever it is to finding your own inner peace mm-hmm. or that shift to just keeping yourself. And there's a there's a kind of a misconception maybe is the word, but there's a almost sometimes I feel like there's too much talk about being happy. Everybody's mm-hmm. got to be happy. Da, 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 da. And it's it's not that way. You know, you know, nobody's just happy all the time. And if they are, they're they probably got more mm-hmm. stuff going on than than the average. But choosing to be happy is something you can do every day, right? Mm-hmm. And choosing to have some of that inner peace is mm-hmm. something that's important. I don't even know if it's choose to be happy. I think it's choose to see the good. I think I can see the good but still have pain. Happiness is a destination or a journey or all, there's all these different things like I choose happy. I choose to see the good. That's kind of the mantra that works for me. And and you could say choose happy, but I don't sometimes that feels superficial. Facebook is the highlight reel, right? Like we only post the really things. So I might look on my phone and oh gosh, everyone's so happy. Why am I not happy? And I think that that is the comparison is a thief of joy. And we got to check ourselves on that. That's the ego saying, you're not good enough. You're not pretty enough. Your kids aren't as talented enough. You know, I get real nervous when I see parents who are only posting their kids' accolades. I have a bumper sticker of parents say, my kid is a National Honor student. I'd rather you say my kid is kind, right? I mean, again, our worth is based on our achievements. And it goes back to, so what happens when I don't have those achievements I'm not happy. And and I'm only happy when life is when I other people are telling me how great I am. And don't get me wrong, we have all fallen into that trap of posting a picture where you look really great and wanting someone to say that. But when you don't get the likes, if the Christmas cards don't come in, if people don't call you, right? If your worth is based on these things you can't control, then my happiness falls. That's what scares me is I have to learn 
to have inner peace and inner happiness. And when those other things come, that's awesome. Support systems are great. But my life and my worth cannot be based upon these external things I have no control over. I think that makes perfect sense. And I think there's a lot of there's a lot of truth in, in all of that. And I think uh, I think it's something that we're seeing more. Of course, you and I growing up didn't have Facebook. We didn't have social media. We barely had the Internet. You know, I mean, when I was in high school, I, I, I distinctly remember in middle school when it was like first available that there even was an Internet at school. And it was like, well, what do you mean you can type in anything and get any answer? Like, what is, who's on the other end of it? Like, I'm, I remember thinking, what does that even mean? Of course, you know, some people who listen to this are going to be older than us. And they're like, well, yeah, you know, I remember we didn't even have phones and yada, yada. Well, they have phones, but not like cell phones and things like that. So, man, things have changed yeah. so much. And I think right now it's interesting time. So here I am. I mean, like, so, if, for example, I, I read – no, I, I listened to a great podcast the other day that was basically talking about how depression and Facebook are directly linked, not just social media, but Facebook in general or Facebook specifically, how it was as your time on Facebook increases, your depression increases at three times the amount. But here's the irony about it. How did I hear about that on Facebook? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it, it's it's hilariously yeah. ironic but it's sad on the same token. And it might have been YouTube when I heard of it. But the point is it was social media of some kind right. because where else do you hear about stuff right. anymore? I mean, there is definitely some good to picking up the phone. I, I heard, I don't know who it was the other day was talking about, they were like, yeah, like, don't call me. Just text me. That's weird. Don't call me anymore. Yeah. Like, right, people are right. saying, like, it's, it's now it's weird to call right. people, you know, unless there's like an emergency or something. Well, obviously, that's a little bit of extreme. But, I mean, that's the culture that we're sliding into uh, in a way. So, if it's not posted out there, it's a, it's a tough deal. And I think for me, being in a self-promoting business or a yeah. obviously self-employed business, my whole goal is to take a podcast like this or another one, put it out there on Facebook and then promote it and get people to listen to it and try to hope people share it and da-da-da-da-da, right? That's how I'm going to try to make my living doing clinics, helping people with horses, and people have to know who I am all over. But it's not no. an easy thing to try to navigate all that sometimes for everybody. And I'm, I'm just a very small pawn in, in these big waters that people are out there uh, doing this kind of stuff. And social media is not all bad. We're so quick in our world to say everything's all good or all bad. There's a lot of great things that have come from social media. It's just when I post that, what, what is my reason? What's the function of the behavior, right? Like, that's always my question. What's the function of the behavior? And I think that, yeah, it's been a great tool to help other people learn about things. I think it's a great educational tool. It's just, right, that what you were saying, it's more than two hours a day of any kind of video games or social media. Increased depression, decreased self-esteem. I mean, the statistics are overwhelming. These kids that are playing Fortnite 13 hours a day, and I say to the kids, those are your fake friends. And they're like, that's mean. I'm like, no, they're fake. They're fake friends. They don't even know who you are. They're not going to be there for you. They're not your friends. And so I think, again, it's making us not be afraid to have those relationships. I appreciate our friendship. And then when you're driving, you'll say, hey, I'm driving. Let's talk. And then those moments we end up talking about the latest podcast, this mental health stuff. Yes, we do talk about this stuff because we enjoy it. But I appreciate that you're kind of, people would say you're old school, but really you're healthy school or whatever that wording is. Yeah, we've got to be careful saying I'm healthy because I'm <laughs> far, far from Well, it. I didn't say that. Your phone's healthy, healthy school. school. Yeah. There's something we haven't talked about that I want to hear your thoughts on because you always give me good pushbacks like, if someone drives you crazy, what is that representing in you? So I remember I was talking to you about something that happened and this person really made me mad. And I remember you really kind of put it back on me. Like, what are they bringing out in you? And I think that's a really healthy thing for mental health, but that's really tough. Because I'm like, no, Cal, this person's just annoying, or they were so wrong, or my boss did me wrong, and they're wrong. And they're like, I don't know what your response is, but I think that is, you'll have to say it, because sometimes I get frustrated, but I know you're right in that case. But being aware of when someone else, when we compare ourselves to someone or comes into the barn or they come into your world or they're driving by and they're just acting a fool and you just waste all this energy getting so irritated. But it's really more about what's that say about you and mindful, healthy people aren't even bothered by it. So what are your thoughts on that? Because uh, you have helped me kind of grow in that way. I mean, I don't know if I really understand a lot of that, but I, I enjoy thinking about some of these things and I have opinions on a lot of it. What I see happen so much is people do this thing where they have a little issue with something. Something bothers them, obviously. Some person comes in the, the room and they're bothered and they say something annoying maybe or they maybe they say something offensive even. Maybe they say something provocatively offensive and they're trying to get underneath that person's skin. So I think what happens a lot is people have a tendency to either think 
they did something wrong or they put it on the other person and go, oh, well, all that does is say something bad about them. And they have a tendency to kind of this new thing where people, maybe they put up things on, on the social media or maybe they just kind of go around saying it. I see t-shirts about it all the time where it's kind of like basically trying to do this this little thing where you're acting like you're not being judgmental while you're judging the other person. Or, you know, it's, it's this weird little thing where it's kind of like when someone's being a bitch to you, then all that says is that they're a bitch. So in a way, they're just like calling names and they're saying bad things about other people because they made them mad or whatever they kind of did. When in reality, I think it's the healthy thing there is to kind of be more like, oh, did they say that? I noticed it, but I didn't really let it come in. Yeah. You know, I just let it go by and then I went on rather than having to go around saying, oh, that just that's more about them or right. whatever, right? And I mean, I think you're right about all of the mental effort that we put towards anything that bothers us. It's a new. And the thing about it is it already happened. And that's a big thing that, that I talk about with the horse deal is, and I think a lot of the reason that I started understanding a lot of these things is because you had to get pretty deep to really help an animal that you can't talk with. They can't tell you what's wrong and you can't reason with them, you know, in a way that you can sit down and talk. So a horse kicks at you and they're doing something with the horse, trying to get him to do this or that. And the horse kicks at the person. So now they whack the horse with what they're holding. And in their head, they're thinking, oh, I'm going to correct that horse for what he did. When in reality, what they're doing is they're bringing more negative attention to the situation and the kicking already happened. It's already over. It's in the past. It's like a fast moving river. The kick is 30 yards up the bank, 35, 40, 45, 50. I mean, it's, it's moving. That was way back then. So anything you do in relationship to that is just not only wasted time, but detrimental. Whereas I think being able to just let go of that and realize, okay, what, what can I do now? What's the direction? And again, that I learned from a lot in the horse deal was direction, not correction. And I, I got some teachers to really start thinking that way. Some teachers that were interested in, in that level of thinking, they really started thinking that way. And man, it helped a lot. And what can you control? Well, sure. What do I have control over? What do I try to control? Name all the things that make you mad. How many of those are that you worried about? Circle the ones you have control over. It's usually like one out of 20. We try to control things that we are afraid of. Yes, we try to control things we're afraid of. When you're working with animals for a living, it is easy to get in a little bit of a controlled or a little bit of a controlling mindset mm -hmm. at times. Well, there's a safety thing that's that's bigger than with some people, right? The unknown of the animal is... The unpredictability could feel very scary, right? When in reality, the only way to be safe is to be vulnerable. Ooh, vulnerability. And that's a big word that I use a lot when talking to the horses and talking. I don't talk to the horses when I'm talking to the people about the horses. You probably talk to the horses. Yeah, yeah well, I might now and then, but not because I think they're going to understand anything, <laughs> just because it's kind of a habit. But No, but is that a thing, though? Like they, when you do talk to them, they can hear your tone and feel, right? Uh, you know? It's not? It's a good question, and it's debatable. Okay. It would be the nicest way to say it. The way I look at it is they don't speak English. I'm not going to waste my time talking to them. Now, can you praise them in a nice, smooth tone? But if it calms you down, it doesn't do any damage, right? Or it's weird? This, it doesn't necessarily always do damage. What happens a lot of times is people want to teach the horse verbal commands, and then next thing you know, they're not going off of the feel, which is really what the horse needs the most. And that's when, I mean, when a horse gets scared out there when you're riding and you say, turn left, or you say, whoa, or you say, and he's scared out of his mind because the turkey just flew up underneath his belly. He's not listening to any of those <laughs> verbal commands. Okay. So, right. So those are the, those, but that's a good question. And, and, and there are, I mean, you don't, I didn't, I have, I thought. I no. And know. there are, yeah. there are many people that ride horses every day that would totally not think about it in the way I just said it. They would yeah. be on the other side of it. But the way I look at it is everything I do with a horse should work when he's at his most scared self. Uh -huh. I'm not going to change what I do when they get to that. Right, because you won't. Let's say you're teaching a horse eight things that are just kind of like for fun, and you teach him two things that will maybe help him when he gets scared. But you work on those eight things because they're more exciting for the crowd to applaud right. with or they're a little more fun for your friends to watch on YouTube. But then when he goes out there and gets scared, you're going to go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and you get bucked off. Or your horse just ran through a fence. Or whatever just happened. Because you don't have time to get to that 9 and 10 because you're not practicing those. But Cal, haven't you had those ego guys that are like, come on, 
that stuff's not going to work. When they're doing this, that foo-foo stuff is not going to work. Have you had people try to call you out on some of that stuff? Because I hear what you're saying and I believe it, but I could see some people not buying into that. Like, And it's with parenting. Like, The crazier they get, they think that you need to get crazier. And what you're saying is the crazier they get, the calmer you need to get. That's how parenting is. And I've had a lot of parents say, oh, no, when they disrespect me, I'm, I'm not going to just let them. So I could see some people kind of going at you with Oh, that. 100%. And that is... That competition thing right there is yeah. what catches up. That happens with a lot of teachers. I saw that happen in the in the education system where people were going, well, I'm not going to let her talk to me like that. Are you kidding me? I got to show the horse. I got to show the kid. I got to show the parent who's boss. And that's the mentality. And, and I, I remember saying to a woman one time, you're 48 years old. She's six. This isn't a competition. Let her be six. Let let you be your age. You, you act like an adult. Let her act like a kindergartner or whatever the case was. Can I ask you a question was. on your own journey? Have you had to check your ego at times? Like as you've gotten older and more experienced, you've had more more confidence when you were younger. Did you ever engage in some of those ego battles? Or... Oh, unbelievably, yes. Yeah, because I can't picture you engaging because you're pretty chill now, but I didn't know you a while ago. So... Well, when I say engaging, I mean, I was never, uh, well, I don't know, never is a pretty strong word, but I don't really remember myself trying to be outwardly argumentative to anyone I was trying to learn from. I mean, I, I was not that way, but okay, so there's two parts here. I mean, one about me personally, of course. My journey learning about horses and on life and whatever else we're talking about, the only reason you can progress is when you you humble yourself as a student in more moments than you want to. Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is this. You're kind of sailing along going, I'm doing pretty good. I got some things figured out. I learned something. I got some people are watching me. I got a little attention here. I got a little money here. I got a little, you know, got a little blue ribbon here and blah, blah, blah. I got people coming to my clinics. I got this and that. And then you see something over there and you're like, you know, out of the corner of your eye, you see this other guy or, or, or gal working a horse. Your deepest thoughts say, that's better than what I'm doing. That's when you have to go, I'm just going to let my ego aside and kind of just hang it up over there for a minute. And I'm going to go over there and watch that. And then I might even ask a few questions. So that has been my journey. Now, is there times when I looked over, saw it out of the corner of my eye, and eh, I kind of like what I'm doing, and I went on? Of course there was. And I'd say that's that's the general majority out there. But for me, I saw a lot of different people that maybe initially I thought there was something good, and then I'd maybe watch them a little bit, and then I would kind of move through that. And then pretty soon, I was interested. Mm-hmm. But every person in general that I saw that looked like it was better than what I was doing, I just went ahead and started doing what they were doing. But that wasn't easy at times, especially having a a business already where you're, you know, you already have some people following you. You have this going on, you have that going on. And it's been quite an evolution for me to learn. And, you know, there was one guy in particular I met named Peter Campbell that showed me a different way. And Tom Pearson kind of helped me a little bit before that. And so many people I learned from, and a lot of them have been on the podcast. And this is where it gets tough for me because I sure don't want to disparage anyone from doing what they want to do with their horses. And I sure don't want to act like the people I rode with 10 years ago are having issues because, man, those are some great horsemen I learned from. But I just kept doing what looked to me like was making more sense for the horses. But in order to really do that, then you really have to, I mean, humble yourself in a way. And some of the guys that I learned from, they understood that because they did that too. And sometimes they would push a little more just to make sure you were going to humble yourself. Because if you didn't, then you were going to be out pretty quick. But I wanted a lot of this stuff bad enough where I just wanted to keep going. But to go full circle, I looked over to the stall saw that what they were doing was good or maybe better, but that didn't discredit all that I had done, right? So that's the piece where we start up. The kid said, I'm not good enough because someone could be better, but that doesn't take away my worth. And I think that's the piece of it. Even if someone else is good or better, I'm also good. There's room for both of us to be good. And that's the piece that I think that's important. There doesn't have to be a best. Right. It doesn't have to be a favorite movie. It doesn't have to be a favorite color. It doesn't have to be a right. best this. I think that always acting like there has to be a winner of, really, a color. We have to make kids pick a favorite color. Now, I'm not trying to say that anybody that's doing that is doing anything wrong. It's, it's a conversation sometimes to have with kids. And sometimes it's just, you know, you're, you're going to buy a hat for them, so you want to know what favorite color they're in. That's fine. I've got nieces and nephews. And, I mean, there's things you want to learn about them. But in general, I think that is a mindset that we set up in the wrong way, where it's like somebody's the best. No, no, he's the best. Now, who cares? They're both great movies. Just enjoy them both. There's room for for all of it, you know. The kids did talk a lot about sibling rivalry and being compared to to their siblings and that this one's better than you or maybe their older brother or sister messed up. 
So then there was a lot, I don't want to be like that, or I'm not as good as them. I mean, we see that in a lot of families and a lot of family dynamics. Whenever I meet someone, I say, what's your birth order, like in my office? So that, there's a lot of stuff we don't have to get into there, but we like to compare. We're not saying we shouldn't push ourselves to be better. No one's saying that. It's just the idea that I can be better but still be good. Right. And I think, like we were talking about on that journey of learning, each level you're at, you're just doing the best you could for with the information you, you have. You know. Right. Um, I had a cousin of mine came to a clinic that I had last summer. And this cousin of mine is like my parents. He's like my mom's cousin. So they they watched my demonstration. And I was super excited they came up because I I used to see them when I was younger, but I haven't really seen them. And they were horse folks and cattle people and good uh, folks. So they came up and afterwards they came over and he said, I was really impressed. You did a good job there. And his wife said, I used to watch him talking about her husband. I used to watch him work horses. And now I can see he was doing a lot of things wrong. And I said, well, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was just doing the best he could with the information he had at that time. But now he has more information. He can do better. That's kind of all it is to it. And also, and you did a really good job bringing it back full circle there about the horses and exactly what we were talking about, about being good enough, but still wanting to get better. That's where people struggle with their horses too. They think their horse needs to be better. So they want to keep working on this. They want to make him spin faster. They want to make him run more. They want to get him more collected. They want to do this more. They want to do that more. Instead of just being, okay, that's fine if you want to keep doing more. But he's good enough where he is as long as you're kind of doing some of these some of these things. It's a big philosophical question in the field of mental health, mental wellness. Is everyone doing the best they can with what they know? Do we need to give more grace? But what if the best they can with what they know is causing others pain? I mean, that there's so many fields of camp on that. You know what I mean? That people have lived, always lived in poverty or people who, you know, maybe are living off a disability and maybe people are very judgmental. They should get a job. They can't get a job. I mean, we become very judgmental. We have many thoughts on what we don't know. But are we all just doing the best with what we know? Should we give a little bit more grace? Should we just focus on our own? life. There's a saying that says, I'm too busy working on my grass to notice if yours is greener. And I think we get so caught up in what everyone else is doing, right, wrong, or indifferent, that I think this is kind of global. For me, world peace starts with inner peace. And if everyone did their own work, we would be a happier and healthier place. So that's kind of my thoughts on all that. So, Kara, I want to bring back something real quick before we wrap up here. We started talking about vulnerability. And That is something that is really important for people to understand when they're working with a horse, especially. And like you said, you know, you're you're talking about the mental health side of things for the humans. Of course, I'm talking a little bit about people being mentally healthy enough to work their horses. And I say I say the words help their horses a lot. And I guess what I really mean is if you're going to ride them, you might as well help them because at any time you're riding them, they may need your help. So you always have to be prepared to help them. So the things that I try to teach about or the things that I think are important are the things that will help the horse the most, okay, like I said. But I think one of the things that is important is you mentioned about people trying to over-control the situation when they are scared or they're maybe the way you said it was, you know, they try to control the fear too much, right? And what happens a lot is people get fearful around a horse, and they should. They should be res- at least have a healthy respect for the horse. Um, and then they kind of compensate for that fear by being over-controlling. And that happens a lot. It happens a lot with professionals even. happens a lot with farriers. happens with veterinarians. People that show up around horses that are, you know, they, they obviously care about horses in a way, but they're a little bit scared of them, so they end up being a little too rough. Or they end up not wanting to let go when they're riding their horse, not wanting to let go of the reins and just let the horse relax. They're worried the horse is going to go right or go left or go too fast, so they're wanting to hang on to them all the time. They're wanting to over-control them or over-confine them, micromanage them. Next thing you know, the micromanaging part or the controlling part is what really causes the issue because they just weren't able to be vulnerable in that situation. So that has to be something that relates right into the people part of it that you work with. Well, and I think that vulnerability goes back to what we started with, with being authentic. And vulnerability vulnerability means this is who I am. This is what I'm afraid of. This is what I know. And there's a lot of shame. Shame is a whole other thing. But um, there's a fear of if I'm honest, if you really knew who I was, then you wouldn't like me. You wouldn't want to be around me. And that's that piece of it. And so I think healthy relationships, healthy lives, healthy people are not afraid to be vulnerable and you choose those people to be in your support system that know your stuff and love you anyway. And I think that when we enter into those circles of relationship and we can be vulnerable and we can show our real true selves, 
That's what healthy people do. And I think that whatever arena you're living in, if you can be vulnerable and live an authentic life, you have the best chance of being happy and, for me, more importantly, being healthy. Okay. Well, Kara, I think we'll wrap up a little bit here. So tell our my listeners here what they can do if they're interested in talking to somebody about some of these things. They can get a hold of you if they're interested in finding maybe somebody. Um, you're not necessarily looking for everybody on the podcast to come do business with you. You don't have time to keep up with all that. It's not that's not the only thing you do, you mentioned earlier. But you can maybe help them find somebody to listen to in their, or talk to in their area. Yeah, and I think it's important to recognize that it has to be a good fit, right? Just like when you're dating or you're getting married or you're finding a someone to watch your kids or your dog. There has to be a good fit. And so not every therapist works for everyone. And to be quite honest, and I and I don't say this because I'm saying I'm great. I'm saying this. There's some bad therapists out there. So you have to find a good fit. Um, so please don't hesitate to contact me, and I'd be happy to help research or help point you in the right direction of what area you live in. Uh, my website is Kara Wojcik, so K-A-R-A-V-O-J-C-S-I-K.com. Um, or get a hold of you, and you can definitely point them in the right direction of me. I, Again, like you said earlier, which I appreciated, we don't all need to go to therapy. And also, the best thing about a therapist is it's an unbiased person, right? Like, when you leave the therapist's office, they're not still thinking about what you said. That's the best thing, right? Like, it's an unbiased person who has attachment to your goals, but whatever you do, they're not affected by your choices. And so some people just need a three, four, five, six-session shakeup, and then they're fine. So also, you're not supposed to be in therapy your whole life. It's kind of like you drive on the car. When the lights go on on the dashboard, you go and get your oil changed you can fill up your toolbox, fill up your gas, and then go back out. So I don't want people to think that it's, you know, it's too much money or I don't have time. It can just be a once a month, twice a month kind of thing. So contact Cal or go to my website, and I'd be happy to help you find that person. Just so you know, when she says contact me, that is not because I am going to be <laughs> equipped to help anybody at all. That is because I can help you get a hold of her or somebody yes. else that can. Yeah. And there's also a... And this is a national, the crisis text line, I believe it's called. Crisistextline.org, I think is the correct website. And you can just text from any mobile phone, 741-741. And there, there are, on the other end of those text messages, are professional counselors, therapists, who will be uh, talking to anybody. It's a free service for anybody at any time. So that's a pretty cool deal. Anything else, Kara? No. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. We'll do it again. Sounds good. If you're enjoying the Horses in Life podcast, there are many ways you can support it. You can obviously tell people about it. You can tell your friends about it. You can share it through social media or any other means. You can go to patreon.com and support it financially. There's a little more information on my website about the podcast. Also on my website, calmiddleton.com. Please be sure you sign up for my monthly newsletters through my email subscription list. Until next time, enjoy each day. Mm -hmm.